0: Alright, well if you wouldn't mind taking your Bible and turning it to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Continuing our study throughout the book of Colossians. And I hope that so far this has been a profitable study for you as we've been looking. This morning we're going to be looking at just verses 6 and 7 within chapter 2. Uh, This morning in Sunday School, we actually took the time to break up these verses and go in depth and and look at some of these words and how they're used. And I hope that was beneficial to those who came this morning to Sunday School. But chapter 2 in Colossians, verses 6 and 7. Let me read those before we pray. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Will you pray with me? Lord, even in the songs that we have sung so far, pray that you'll give us a real sense of who we are in light of who you are, that you are indescribable. That you are the one who has rescued us and that we did not rescue ourselves. That you paid it all. That we didn't pay an ounce of it. And that all we have is you. That's our confession this morning. You are indescribable. You saved us. You paid it all. All that we have is you. And Lord, I pray that as we look at these verses, that they will speak to us by your Spirit. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and his willingness to write these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. We pray, Spirit, that you'll open it to our eyes. Christ, we are thankful to you for paying all of it. We're thankful that all we have is you. And if we had the whole world and we didn't have you, we would have nothing. We're thankful in Christ's name, amen. I've heard throughout my life this illustration several times in various sermons, and I'm guessing that you probably have as well. But it's said that different bureaus like the FBI and different organizations like that, in order to train people to detect counterfeit money, they don't. Analyze all different kinds of counterfeit money. What they do is they give those people, the the people who are being trained to detect counterfeit money, what they do is they give those agents, those individuals, real money. And they describe to them what real money is, what to look for, what what to feel for in regard to what real money is. And so when they're training somebody to see if a $100 bill is real or not, they don't have them take 10 fake $100 bills to touch. They simply give them the real $100 bill. They teach them what to look for, how to look at it just right in the light. They teach them all of those aspects. You've probably even seen this when you go to buy something at a cash register, and maybe you hand them a $100 bill or a $20 bill, and what do they immediately do? They, they take it and they look at it in the light, right, to see if there is some kind of watermark on it. And what's interesting is that there was a pastor up in Canada who wanted to verify if this illustration that he had heard so many times, and I've heard so many times in my life, if it was true. And so he wrote a couple of articles about how he went to the Bank of Canada, and he eventually, he made a few calls and eventually got pushed to this individual who knew a lot about counterfeit money. And so this pastor was sitting with this lady who knew all about counterfeiting. And just for fun, this woman brought this pastor in and showed him how he could tell a counterfeit from a fake. And she did exactly what the sermon illustration has said for quite a long time, that she gave him real money. And so when he was handed a stack of of bills that were either fake or not fake and they were all mixed together, he could go through them and he could tell. He would say, "Well, well, this one feels a little waxy or this one doesn't look quite right in the light. And he could tell the difference because he has been exposed to what was genuine. He was exposed to what was true. And so far within the book of Colossians, Paul's emphasis and what he has been showing us is the truth about the Lord, the truth about Jesus, giving us all this information concerning how genuine they're the genuine Christ and who he clearly is. And like we saw in chapter two, verse four last week, there's a specific reason that he wants us to have a good handle on Christ, isn't there? Look in chapter two, verse four, just a couple verses above. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So I want you to know who the real Jesus is. I want you to know who the real Lord is. I want you to know all the various aspects of Him. And that's what what we call the high Christology of the book of Colossians. Talking about Jesus in such a supreme way. Paul wants them to have such a handle on this Christ. That when they see the counterfeit that they'll know right away. Or in chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 this week, but next week, passage, passage in chapter 2, verse 8, he says this See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the whole idea is I want you to know about Jesus, I want you to know the genuine Christ. Paul doesn't want us to be deluded by false teachers and false perspectives of Jesus. He wants us not to be taken captive by any kind of philosophy or deceitfulness or human tradition that is counter to the genuine Christ. He only wants us to be captive to the real Jesus. He wants us to like we looked at last week, take the treasure of Christ. Take the 100 or trillion billion zillion dollar bill of Jesus that he is and look at him as the real deal. That there's nothing counterfeit in the real Jesus and that we don't need anything else that all we have is Christ the true Christ from scripture we don't need the counterfeit perspectives of Christ or spirituality that false teachers would love to give us we simply have Christ that explained is explained to us in the word of god this is why it's imperative to get a handle on Christ so you can stand against all the false teaching that is out there there's so much false teaching in the world Just like an FBI agent doesn't study all of the different kinds of of counterfeit bills. Don't be concerned about learning this and that perspective and that perspective and this and this. And all of these other things from all of these other books and all these other perspectives and all these other teachers. There are so many who would love to lead you astray and to delude you and bring you into their camp. And this is partly why one of the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. Which is Latin for simply meaning scripture alone. That is all we need. And so that's why when the Protestant reformers, when they're standing up against the Catholic Church, they wanted, that's why they're called reformers. They wanted to reform the Catholic Church, but they knew it wasn't going to happen when they got to a certain point, so they broke away from it. And part of the huge problem was the Catholic Church does not stand by Scripture alone. They stand by tradition. They stand by various things that do not line up with the Word of God. And so therefore they broke away. From the Catholic Church. But this is part of why. Sola Scriptura is so important. Scripture alone. So as believers we have no other book to look to. This, this is it. This is, this is what we have. This is the word of God. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. This is God's word. And so we hold to it. And so when a false teacher comes to you and tries to lead you astray. You know the real Christ from the real Word of God so vividly and so actively within your life that you detect that counterfeit. You know when you are being deluded. And so as we continue in this morning's passage and we come into chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7, we begin to see more clearly what it looks like to be a genuine recipient of the true Christ. Look with me at at your Bible at verse 6, if you will. Look even at the first word. He says, Therefore... The rule of thumb when you're studying the Bible is when you see the word therefore, you find out what it's there for, right? When you see therefore, you find out what it's there for. And the word therefore, it's it's a transitional word, isn't it? So Paul is transitioning from all of this truth that he has talked about Christ into some real practicality. Look again at the verse. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And so that's really kind of the main heading that everything else we're going to look at kind of shoots off from. The main heading is you've received Christ the Lord, okay? So that's the fact that you live in. In light of it, how are we supposed to live? So if it's true in verse 7, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, if we have received Christ Jesus as our Lord, how do we live? Well, first we walk in Him. We're rooted and we're built up in Him. We're established in Him. And you abound in thanksgiving to Him as these verses go on to say. But that big idea in verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. And so Paul is clear with them. He believes that these Colossians are believers. He clearly indicates that within them. They're straying a little bit. They're learning. They're being duped and deluded a little bit from these false teachers that have come in. But he sees that they're genuine in their faith. That they do believe. That they have genuinely received Christ. And I think in part what Paul is doing. Is he's bringing these Colossians. Back to the beginning of their experience. With Jesus. So he doesn't want them to be deluded by the counterfeits. And so he goes back to the beginning. When they were first saved. Well you remember that in chapter 1. And verses 7 7 to 8. We see that there's this man named Epaphras. And Epaphras goes to his friends and family. In the city of Colossae. And he tells them about this Jesus that he had learned about from the Apostle Paul over in Ephesus which isn't too far away from Colossae and so Epaphras goes back to his people in Colossae, he preaches Jesus to them, they had never heard about this Jesus and and, and after only a little time the false teachers had crept into the church of new believers that had first believed in Christ and so they begin deluding them with this false doctrine and these plausible arguments, confusing them confounding them Coming to the Colossians with things that sound good. But in the end, they do not line up with scripture. Really what they were doing was diminishing Jesus as the Lord over all. And the only way needed for salvation. And so Paul here gets back to the foundation. He gets back to where they began their spiritual journey. Back to the point where they received Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that's a really good place to go if you're ever interacting with somebody who is being deluded a little bit. Who is struggling through different processes. Even in basic counseling. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to before all the problems began. Let's go back, Colossians, to where you first received Christ. To say, let's get back to where this began for you. Let's get back to the precious days, that initial relationship with Christ that you have. Let's go back to before you were led to stray. And this is what Paul does. He goes back to the days when the Colossian people first believed in Christ, when they had received Christ Jesus as Lord. We see that often uh, in reference to our Lord, don't we? Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, the Lord. And what the word Christ is in reference to is the fact that he's the Messiah, right? That he is the anointed one. The name Jesus, of course, you remember when Jesus, around when he was born, his name shall be Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. So the the word Christ emphasizing the fact that he is the true Messiah. The word Jesus emphasizing the fact that he is the, the Savior. And then, of course, the Lord. He is the Lord, meaning that he is the Master. And really, the emphasis of this is all directed toward that word Lord. That the Colossians had received Christ Jesus As Lord. Back in the late 80's and early 90's. John MacArthur. Which many of you have heard on the radio. He's on WBCI a couple of times a day. But John MacArthur was embroiled. In a heated debate with several theologians. Concerning what the scriptures say. That uh, in regard to the lordship of Christ. In regard to accepting Christ. In order to be saved. What do we need to accept him as? Do we accept him merely as our savior? Or do we accept Him as Savior and Lord? And I hope you see where I'm going with this. And then I side with Brother MacArthur on this. In part because of what he says to the Colossians here. He doesn't say that they had just received Him as their Savior, as, as Jesus. But that they had received Him as their Lord. That he, they had submitted to His Lordship over their lives. And I bring this up to be clear that the Bible doesn't know of a Christian who doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. The Bible doesn't know of a Christian who does not acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and not as their Lord. From the very beginning, where we saw over and over in the book of Matthew a year or two ago, what did we see? That the initial call for being a disciple is laying everything else aside and for accepting Jesus as Lord. That It's Lordship. That Jesus, when He approaches His disciples and He says, You follow Me, it wasn't this hesitant response, was it? It was, Yes, Lord, I, I will follow after You. So to be a disciple under the rabbi, the rabbi, under the master. If you're ever going to take a step in following after Christ, he must be your master. He must be your Lord. You must be in the position where everything in your life, in every decision, in every action, every thought is captive to the lordship of Jesus just consider a few of these radical statements that Jesus made and they really are radical. Luke 14 and verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or Luke chapter 16 and verse 13. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And this is in the context of money. You cannot serve God and money. In other words, you cannot have two masters. You cannot be the master of your fate and also acknowledge the Lord being the master as well. You must accept Him as Lord alone over your life. Matthew chapter 10 verse 37 to 38. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those radical? Those are radical statements. Or the famous words of Paul in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. You'll be saved. Receiving Jesus is a call to accept him not only as Savior, but as as Lord. It's a call to leave everything else behind. It's a call to self-denial. It's a call to submit everything in your life to the will of the Lord. That there isn't an ounce of our life that the Lord doesn't control or command. But that all of it is at His disposal. And that we follow everything that He commands us in His Word. And we've seen so much in regard to what Paul has to say about Jesus in the book of Colossians already, haven't we? And I love the way one author put it, that to call Jesus as Lord is really shorthand For all that we've seen Him in the book of Colossians to be. So Jesus is Lord, meaning He's preeminent over all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. He Himself is God. He is the head of the church. He is the mystery of God. He is where all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are found. So very simply stated, when you say that Jesus Christ is the Lord, you must indicate all that has come previously in the first chapter and half of this book. He is preeminent. And that not only is He preeminent over creation... But that he is preeminent over every single person that is in this room right now. Every thought, every action, every breath is under his lordship. And have you made this confession? Have you truly submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus? You know, it it sounds radical. You read those kinds of verses. That if you don't love me more than you love your family, you're not worthy of me. That if you don't deny yourself, you're not worthy of me. If you don't even, the word he uses is hate. If you don't even hate your family in comparison to your love for me, you can't be my disciple. Where are you? Have you made this confession? The Bible's clear in Philippians chapter two that one day every single knee is gonna bow to Jesus. You can bow your knee in this life or you can bow your knee then. But far better to bow your knee now and to submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus and to trust in Him alone for the forgiveness Of your sins. Have you said. Here's my cross. I'm picking it up. I'm following after Jesus. Have you submitted to his lordship. I think of over in Britain. In the early 1900's. More so. uh, Even with a TV show like Downton Abbey. That some of you have seen. the the years before then, the centuries before then, you had the aristocracy, right? And that still exists, but not really in the same way it did back then. And they own these beautiful, huge houses. And they have all of these servants that literally live to serve the lords and ladies of the house. That they did everything that they were told that they should do. They did everything that they thought that they should do. They didn't do anything that a lord or a lady would disapprove of. And in a far deeper and greater way, we should live our lives under the Lordship of Christ. Always functioning and acting and living and thinking in a way that would please the Lord alone. How does He want us to spend our time? What does He want us to watch? What kind of language should we be using? What are His expectations of us? I gave the illustration earlier in Sunday school, but what if we all went to our workplaces and we all had our respective boss watching everything that we did? How would we work throughout the day? We'd probably get a few more things done. But it's the same way in terms of our lives of Christ. That the Lord is always watching. Therefore we live in a way that reflects that. I wonder if there are any here today who have not submitted themselves to that. The word that Paul uses is receive. It indicates a time in the past when they genuinely believed. But was there ever a time where you submitted yourself there? Paul begins to express how this fleshes out as he finishes in verse 6 what this living under the Lordship looks like. He says, so walk in Him. You've received Christ, so walk in Him. This is a common theme in the writing of Paul. We've already seen in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that's fully pleasing to him. Or what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally then brothers we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. That as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Just as you are doing. That you do so more and more. So both of these verses expressing the fact that to walk in him. To walk in Christ indicates that we walk in a way that pleases him. That everything we do is within the bounds of Christ under His Lordship. Not walking outside of Him or taking shortcuts, but walking in Christ. This is a, a continual action that we will do until the Lord calls us home. Our entire lives dedicated to walking in Christ. You notice that this walking isn't optional either, is it? This is in the imperative. He's telling us, walk in Him. It's like when you tell your children, go clean your room. Or when your boss says, finish the job today. Those are imperative statements. There's no wiggle room. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for delay. And so if we're going to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Then we must walk in him. Follow his ways. Walk in a way that is fully pleasing to him. But look how he continues in verse 7. Rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith. Just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. So walk in him. But we're also to be rooted and built up in Him. The word here for rooted is an agricultural or a a horticultural term for a vegetable or a tree uh, that that is rooted. And that's obviously really important. If you're planting or gardening that you want your your plants to be rooted into the ground. So that when the winds blow and the storms come that they don't get easily knocked over. And Paul talks about this in relation to the Christian, that the Christian is to be rooted. Why? In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human cunning, craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the point is that we're rooted so that when the false doctrine comes, it doesn't blow us around. It doesn't blow us out of the ground. And so Paul is calling us as those surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus to be rooted in Christ, which is the most secure place for your roots to be because they'll be able to grow in depth and never run out of space. And the further your roots go into Christ, the stronger you'll be, the better chance you'll have so that you can withstand the winds of doctrine that may blow. Matthew Henry writes, if we live in him, we shall be rooted in him. And the more firmly we are rooted in him, the more intimately we shall live in him. Remember that illustration that Jesus even gives in John chapter 15. That famous passage where Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. That we're remaining in Christ. That we are connected firmly to Him. Abiding in Him. Deeply rooted and connected to Jesus. But the next term that we see is that we're to be built up in Him. Built up into Christ. Not only do we have the roots, but we have that foundation. But we're also built up into Him. So the first is that horticultural term. And the second is a building or a construction term. So that we're, we're being built up into Jesus. That, that as a result of being rooted deeply in Christ in the past. That we've received Him, we're rooted in Him. And then He is able to build on the solid foundation. And then the third thing that we see is in verse 7. That word established. That Paul wants us to be established in the faith. Really just another way to be established formally in Christ. Established in the faith of Christ. Colossians chapter one verse twenty-three, he says this if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, or Romans sixteen, twenty-five, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians one twenty-one, it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He wants you to, to walk in Christ. He wants you to be rooted and built up in Christ. He wants you to be established in the faith just as you were taught. And what flows from this is is this being so tightly knit together and close with Christ is that what he finishes in verse 7 with, abounding in thanksgiving. I have to say, I haven't met many people that I would say, that person is abounding with thanksgiving. They just ooze thanksgiving. Giving. I have not met many people like that. And oftentimes, we, our own lives, when I analyze my life, I don't see myself as abounding with thanksgiving. But if all of these things are true, why am I not? Why are you not? This carries the idea of excelling in thanksgiving. That the idea of thanksgiving is, is prominent in your life. Paul wants us to be overflowing with it. This is another thing he often mentions, but over in Ephesians 5, he says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, I wonder how many times a day that you moms and dads and your grandparents, that you look at a child after giving them something and you say, excuse me? Right. Hand them a treat? You don't say anything. But what do you have to say? They have to say, thank you, right? They have to express some sort of gratitude for what you have done to them. So you, when you give them a toy, when you give them a meal, when you give them a time to play at a playground or something, we have this expectation that they would be thankful for that. We hope and expect that our children would be thankful. Otherwise, they end up self-entitled brats, ungrateful adults who think the world owes them everything, But an attitude of gratitude is certainly not readily seen in our world today. Just like it's not often seen in our children. But is it seen in you? Is gratitude expressed in your life? Are you known for being a grateful person to God? It seems like our own gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. And everything he gives to us is a bit of the same to the world. That God gives us another breath. What should be the response? Thank you. God gives us another meal. Thank you. God gives us another paycheck. Thank you. God grows us and He prunes us and He takes things out of our lives and He makes us more like Jesus. Thank you. Now what about the gratitude for things even heavier like I just mentioned? Going back to verse 6, do we praise Him and thank Him incessantly for the salvation that we've received from Him? Is that something that you thank Him daily for? Thank you for giving yourself to me, Christ. Christ. Thank you for giving yourself on my behalf. Thank you for snatching me from the flames of hell. Do we thank him for his lordship? Do we thank him for his guiding us as we walk in him? Do we thank him for, being, for rooting us and building us up in him? Do we thank him for establishing us as his? For transferring us from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of his beloved son? I mean, you can imagine that if somebody had saved your life, how indebted to them would you feel? It would just be a constant overflow of thanksgiving to that person for saving your life. And how much more so should we be thankful to God for what He has done? And you imagine a context like that within our church where every one of us is thankful. And we're expressing thanks not only to one another for whatever it is, but to thank, eat, thank God together. To express that to God as a congregation God is a a blow-you-away-with-his-kindness kind of a God, isn't he? He's so good. He is forever pouring out His mercy and His grace to us, loving us, caring for us. Never a moment where we are out of His care. We should be expressing a gratitude to God, abounding in thanksgiving to Him. Well, this is a couple of wonderful verses. You've received Christ, so walk in Him. You've received Christ, so stay rooted in Him. You've received Christ, so be continually be built up in Him. You've received Christ, so remain established in Him. And in light of receiving Christ in all of these ways, abound in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we do thankful. thank you for this time of worship and all of this that you have done. Fill our hearts with thankfulness, we pray. We love you. We praise you. To think upon your sacrifice is it just a wonderful thing. And if we had been saved by somebody in this life, we would feel so thankful to them. And oftentimes in your death for us, dying for us, we don't feel that grateful. But by your spirit, we pray, Lord, produce this in us in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand with me?